0: We're, going to be, we're in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, and we're looking at a passage of scripture that's known as the Faith Hall of Fame. And it is rightly called the Hall of Fame because everybody who's anybody in the Old Testament is listed there. I mean, the biggest names of the Old Testament, the biggest heroes of the faith are all listed there in Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know exactly who that was, But the writer of Hebrews is making a statement, is saying that God did something through all of these heroes, not because of their human effort or not because of their human striving or strength, but through their faith, their faith in God to work through them. And so um, in addition to them being incredible people of faith, they also were people with flaws. They were people with And so maybe we need to think about Hebrews 11, not in terms of a hall of fame, but a hall of flaw. Because we have flaws as well. And and just as God worked through Moses, who we're going to look at today, God can work through us. Moses had flaws, as we're going to look at today, and we have flaws as well. But by faith, we can be plugged into the mission of God. And God can use us uh, to accomplish his purposes So that's where we're going to be today, Hebrews 11. We're also going to be in Numbers 20, um, and we're going to explore this story together. So like I said, it's summertime. It's the 4th of July. We've got a holiday coming up, and so uh, my family, we're about to go to the beach for our vacation. We're looking forward to that. You guys are playing in baseball tournaments and softball tournaments, and we're going to baseball games, and we're visiting family. And it's especially meaningful this year because for like a year during the pandemic, we were cooped up. And now... We're out there, and we're living life, and we're doing all the things we wanted to do last year. We've got stimulus money to spend. I mean, we're just ready to get out and to enjoy uh, all that life has to offer. And one of the things that's going to happen as our culture kind of gets out and enjoys those things, we're going to post it on social media, and we're going to tell the world of all the great things we're doing and how great our life is and how wonderful our vacation is. You know what happens on on, on social media? There is a perception that is created that other people have these insta-perfect lives. Like, as you scroll through their feed, as you look at the things that they're doing, and the places they're going, the vacations they have, it can create this perception of perfection. Also called, you know, just this insta-perfect Perception. And sometimes you can look at, you know, someone's social media footprint, and it can appear that, oh my goodness, they've got the perfect vacation, they have the perfect kids, they have the perfect job, the perfect house. Even their dog is like this perfect labradoodle breed, you know? Like everything about them is, is perfect. It can create this perception. But I want to let you in on a little secret that we're discovering about social media and humans' use of it. They only humans, that is, us... We, we only post what we want you to see. We only post what we want you to see. We, 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 we are not posting our worst moments. We're posting our best moments. When our kid gets a hit, when our kid has a great game, we're posting that. We're not posting the video of them striking out. We're deleting that as fast as we can. But we post our best moments. And it would appear, if you just look at our social media feeds, that, oh my goodness, everything appears to be perfect. I discovered that there's even filters on cer- certain platforms. I don't know if you knew this. You're going to you really thank me later when, when, you, when, you, when you learn this. But there's certain filters on some social media platforms. It makes you appear younger. Yeah, it makes you appear younger. So you, you, your insta-perfect life can be even that much better. When you put that filter on and you instantly take 10 years off of your face. Which is a lot cheaper than plastic surgery, by the way. A lot cheaper. And as you read Hebrews 11, you might think that all of these characters are perfect. You might think all these characters are perfect. I mean... As, as you're scrolling, imagine Hebrews 11 as an Instagram feed, and it's like, oh, man, look at what Noah did. Oh, my goodness, look at Abraham. Wow, wow Sarah. Wow, all these people living by faith, doing this amazing thing. And we get to Moses. And, and Chad read it for us in worship, and, and we'll just run through it real quickly. Now you're scrolling through and you see, man, look at Moses by faith when he had grown up. He refused to be known as, as, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God, didn't enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, verse 27, he left Egypt. He didn't fear the king's anger. He persevered. He saw the one who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover. And you scroll through there, you get to verse 29. By faith, because of Moses, the people, they passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Wow! Moses has it all together, doesn't he? He's insta-perfect. He's living by faith. And Hebrews celebrates those things, and we celebrate those things to, today. And yes, oh my word, is there, I mean, there, there's few people that, that just did as many things for the people of God as Moses. And it was through faith, and he trusted the Lord, and we celebrate that today, and that's why we're telling his story. But the writer to the Hebrews, is under no delusion that you don't know the rest of the story. I mean, he specifically is writing to people who have the entire Old Testament in their possession. They know Moses' story, and they, they, they know that along with this picture of absolute faithfulness to God, there are a number of episodes in the Old Testament that demonstrate that Moses was far from perfect. And one of those episodes is in the book of Numbers. One of those episodes is in the book of Numbers, and we're going to look at that, and here's why. Because as I I read the story of the heroes of the Bible, I believe they, they teach us as much. The heroes of the Bible, they teach us as much through their flaws as they do through their faith. They teach us as much through their flaws as they do through their faith. And as people of grace... And as recipients of grace, we should tell the story of their flaws as much as we tell the story of their faith, so that we can see how God works through that, and we can see how God can do something of eternal significance through our lives as well. So here we are with Moses and the children of Israel in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. And the Israelites, they're in the wilderness, and at this point in the story, Numbers 20, they've been there for about 40 years. This is towards the end of this period of time known as the, the, the wilderness wanderings. Now, what you see in Hebrews 11 is this, this verse 29. By faith they crossed through the Red Sea and the Egyptians were drowned. And what's the next verse? Verse 30 in Hebrews 11. By faith Joshua defeated the city of Jericho and the walls fell. The writer of Hebrews skips. 40 years of Israelite history. The writer of Hebrews skips the wilderness wanderings. The writer of Hebrews takes us straight from crossing the Red Sea to conquering Jericho. What we want to do this morning is ask ourselves, what happened in between verse 29 and verse 30? And what is it that we can learn about our life in Christ during that time? So it's toward the end of this 40 years... Of, of wandering, and if you recall the story, the Lord says you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. You're going to go from place to place. You're not going to enter into the promised land because you failed to trust me. You failed to trust that I could do it. And so it's going to take you 40 years to learn to trust me so that you can ultimately enter into this promised land. And let's just try to put our so let's use our imagination, and let's try to think about what it would be like to be an Israelite during this time. If you were two years old when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, you're now 42 years old. And your entire life has been moving from place to place in the wilderness, watching your parents not fully trust the Lord. You also have this this idea, of this delayed goal. Like all along it's been, we're getting to the promised land. God's given us this land. And all along it's been like, wait till next year. Wait till next year. We're gonna get into the promised land next year. It's just, it's just been this delayed goal. And so that also has created disappointment. And if you're disappointed, as just the regular Israelite in the camp, imagine how Moses feels. Imagine the frustration that Moses feels as as he has this goal, as he was given this vision by God to lead the people into the promised land. And now they are in this time of wandering, this time of refinement, this time of, of, of learning how to trust God. And Numbers 20 begins in a way that just exacerbates all of that. It begins with this statement, Now Miriam, the, Mo- the sister of Moses, died and was buried. We have Miriam, we have Moses, we have Aaron these three siblings that God was using to, to lead the Israelites to the promised land, and now Miriam has died, and she misses out on the promise. So not only is Moses dealing with the loss of his sister, dealing with the disappointment of not being in the promised land, then this frustration is, is exacerbated by these people. All oh, these Israelites. We love them and we hate them Sometimes. They're out there in the desert, they go to a new place. They thought there was water and they get there and and they discover there's no water here in this place. And so they go to Moses and they begin to say something they've said before. Oh, Moses, 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 Moses. Why'd you lead us out here into the desert? There's no water, there's nothing for us to drink. This was a bad idea. I knew I should have stayed in Egypt. This was a bad idea, Moses. And so they're grumbling and, and they're complaining. And Moses does what he's done time and time again when the people grumble and they complain. He goes to the Lord and he prays. And the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to provide water for you. And, and, and what I want you to do is I want you to take your staff, the staff that you use to perform signs and wonders for Pharaoh, the staff that you use to part the Red Sea. I want you to take this staff and I want you to go up before the people and I want you to to the people and pray and i'm going to bring water out of a rock And, and 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 this was what god promised to do what we actually know from the geography of this land is that there are underwater springs and from time to time the pressure under these springs will bubble over and and a spring will appear in the desert And what God was saying to Moses is, I'm going to bring water up out of that spring. It's going to provide water for your livestock. You're going to be able to live there. You're going to be able to thrive there. But go to the people and speak to them. And so what we read in Numbers 20 is Moses sort of doing what God told him to do, but sort of having his own take on it. You see some of the frustration boiling over for Moses, verse 9. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels! Must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm, and he struck the rock twice with his staff. And water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Moses had clear instructions from the Lord. Go, speak to the people. Honor me as holy in the sight of the people, and I will provide for you. And by the time Moses assembles them together, he's frustrated. It kind of just... Instead of the water bubbling out of the the rock, this anger and this frustration bubbles out of Moses. Instead of speaking to the people, he takes his staff, this symbol of power, this symbol of leverage that he has with God that they don't have. And he takes the staff and he strikes the rock twice as a way of saying, look, I'm the one who determines when water comes and when it doesn't. I'm the one that's in charge here You're just a bunch of rebels. You don't appreciate what I've done for you. And here I am again with my staff and my special position with the Lord, making sure that you all don't die. Now, please show some appreciation for what I have been doing for you these past 40 years. And Moses doesn't follow the way of the Lord, Moses doesn't honor the Lord as holy. Instead, he allows his anger and his frustration to boil over in that moment, and there's a consequence for that. There's a consequence for not living and acting and conducting ourselves the way God has called us to live and to act and conduct ourselves. We're called to speak in a certain way. We're called to love in ways that are radical. We're called to be patient we're called to honor the Lord in everything we say and do. And in this moment, Moses wasn't honoring the Lord. He was using his special privilege and power that the Lord gave him to berate people and to, and to, and to take out some of his frustration on them. He was angry. And the consequence is he is ultimately not going to be the one to lead the people into the promised land because he manipulated his power that he had with God. And here's Moses' flaw, but what about our flaw? What is it like when we're angry? What is it like when we are, when our, our temper boils over, when we're frustrated? Do you, do you know what it's like to be angry? Let's talk about our anger just for a little bit, because I think in our journey of faith, in our journey of becoming more like Jesus, our anger and our temper derails us probably more than than, than maybe any other emotion. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 4. He's actually quoting Psalm 4 here. In your anger, do not sin. That's the quote from the book of Psalms. Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Wow. Look at what Paul's saying about our anger. I mean, he's pulling from the Old Testament tradition, in your anger, do not sin. I imagine the psalmist, when the psalmist wrote this, was thinking of, wow, Moses was pretty angry back in the day, and his expression of anger cost him a chance to lead the people into the promised land. Maybe we need to make this a part of our worship Part of our songs that regularly form and shape us as the people of God, let's write a psalm about in our anger do not sin. Because anger can create sin. And Paul picks that up and he builds on that. When we sin out of anger, we're giving the devil, the enemy of our soul, a foothold. What is a foothold? It's a place of leverage. It's a place where the devil can come into our life and exert leverage in our life to thwart the plan and purposes of God. When we do not allow God to control our anger and our, this expression of this emotion, we're giving the devil leverage to do all kinds of things, and it wrecks relationships. Our anger is leverage for the devil to wreck relationships. And what does God say, the most important commandment? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Two most important commandments. And when we allow our anger to go unchecked, we're giving the devil a foothold. So that relationships between moms and dads, relationships between kids and parents, relationships between husbands and wives, relationships between coworkers, relationships with people that we go to church with, relationships with neighbors that we share streets with, relationships can be wrecked because of that foothold the devil has in our life. Um, so, so, so let's think about that. When is the last time you made a good decision when you were angry? You were mad, somebody said something, somebody did something, they were wrong, the whole world knew they were wrong, and you were angry, and you were upset about it, and there was steam coming out of your ears, and immediately you made a decision, and it was the right decision. When is the last time you said something that was just the exact thing to say when you were angry? When was the last time you did something? It was the exact, correct, God honoring, God fearing, people loving response. You were so mad, and immediately you made that decision, and it was the absolute right thing to do. Yeah, I'll answer that question for you. And the answer is never, never. Like, we never make the God honoring decision when we are angry. And that's why the Israelite wisdom tradition, we read this in the book of Ecclesiastes, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of, say it with me, fools. Anger resides in the lap of fools. We want to make wise decisions. We want to make decisions that honor the Lord. We want to make decisions that build and strengthen relationships. And when we make decisions out of a place of anger... We're making the decision of a fool. And scripture calls us to so much more. Scripture calls us to make decisions and speak in ways that are wise and that honor him. When have you been most angry? Uh, So I'm going to answer that question uh, with a personal story. And this is a, a story that I am carefully curating it's not the time I've been most angry, because the time I've been most angry uh, I, I probably, you know, um, you know, I've been married 20 years. And so I don't think I have Lauren's permission to share those stories. like those are in the vault, right? Um, We're both just stubborn enough to make this work, okay? That's kind of how we've gotten to 20 years. And somebody that's been married more than 20 years, you can say amen, right? (sighs) But it was a few months ago, and uh, Paul and I were out playing golf. And I I, I find myself, like the times in which I've been most angry, sports are always involved. Can anybody relate to that? Like, sports are all, like, I'm trying to win something. I'm trying to play something. It, it, it happens on the softball field. It happens uh, coaching my kids. Baseball team. It happens with church pickup, basketball. Like, somehow sports and anger are involved. And we're, we're, we're playing golf. It's, it's Paul and I. And there's this guy behind us, and, and he's playing probably a little bit faster than we are. And, and he's wanting to get through. He's wanting to play through us and, and finish his round. And, and finally, he's kind of had enough of trailing behind us, and, and we were going to let him through on the next hole because it was a par three, and that's easier to let somebody... Well, you don't care about that. I'm just saying. He was wanting to get through, and, and eventually he had kind of... His patience had been exhausted, and, and he whistled to us, and he said, hey, we were up on the green, and he's back here in the fairway about 150 yards out. He whistles to us and says, hey, can I play through? And I motioned back to him, in perfect control of my emotions, I, would, I motioned back to him and I said, no, hold on. I even held my hand up like this. Okay, what does this mean? Okay, you have, I, said, I said, no, hold on. And I go about lining my shot up and I'm about to chip onto the green. And as I'm lining up to chip onto the green, I literally hear the wind of his ball coming like right past my nose. Like it literally, like I felt the wind of the ball like come past my nose. And I am livid. I am so mad. There is steam coming out of my ears because I said, no, hold on and I have this golf club in my hand. And Paul's on the green waiting for me to chip. And he sees all this happening. And I immediately turn towards this guy with this golf club in my hand. And I am moving towards him because I want to confront him because he has broken the cardinal rule of golf. is hitting up into somebody. Especially after they've told you, no, hold on. And as I'm moving towards this guy with the golf club in my hand, my son, thank God for him, he's on the green. and He says, no, Dad, don't do it. <laughs> my father's a very violent man. No, don't do it. Which I completely ignored because this guy had, had committed a great injustice of golf. And I was going to right that wrong. And, and, and fortunately, when you're trying to cover 150 yards of real estate, you have time to cool down a little bit. In addition to the fact I thought, oh my gosh, I cannot get into an altercation here with my son. What kind of example would that be? But I did close the distance enough to have a face-to-face conversation with him and say, hey, what were you doing? I told you to hold on, and it could have gotten really heated. Okay, it could have gotten really heated. And this gentleman, he's a gentleman. Now, this gentleman, he 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 did something that that the Bible says is is generally a good practice. He says he said the first thing out of his mouth was, "Oh man, I'm sorry. Said, oh man, I'm sorry. I thought you said." go come on i thought you said go come on because this looks like go doesn't it (laughs) no hold on i can sounds a lot like go come on but the fact that i did this i think means that he's not very good at maybe he couldn't see that far away i don't know But he said, I'm sorry. And the Bible does say, a a soft answer turneth away wrath. A soft answer turneth away wrath. And tragedy was avoided. Uh, I didn't swing a golf club at him. He didn't swing a golf club at me. We worked it out. In fact, I think by the time he finished out, we were actually, you know, I I thought, man, I, I actually probably could be friends with this guy. We had a lot in common. He's playing golf, I'm playing golf. He can't see, apparently, but other than that. um, But I was so mad. I was so mad. And in that moment, I was going to make a very poor decision. I was going to make a very poor decision. And so we have to think about the times that we're angry, the times that we're mad, the times that we're fired up about stuff. That is not the time to make a a decision. That is not the time to respond. That is not the time to speak. Friends, followers of Jesus, we've got to learn to take a deep breath and ask ourselves, how would Jesus respond in this situation? As I'm trying to follow Jesus, what would the example of Jesus be in this situation? And had Moses taken the time, I wonder, to, to, to calm down, to cool down. I wonder how this chapter would have been different. Because what actually happens in this chapter, at the beginning of Numbers 20, he buries his sister. At the end of Numbers 20, he buries his brother, Aaron. And you know what happens in the middle? In the middle, he buries his destiny. He buries his calling. He's disqualified from this call that God gave him to lead the people into the promised land because he acted in anger, because he made a decision when he was frustrated and when he was angry. And as we continue to tell the story of Moses, we remember him for his faith. And and, and the takeaway today is not, you know, be less angry, okay? Just, Just do a better job of not being angry. That's not the takeaway today. The takeaway is, as you work through Hebrews 11, and as you see all these people who are living by faith, ultimately it points us to Jesus. And, and today, if you've ever struggled with anger, if you've ever struggled with losing your temper, don't hear the preacher saying, well, you just got to do a better job with that. Here's what, hear, uh, here's what I want you to hear me say. Here's what I, wa- I want to say to you. Look to Jesus. Like Jesus is the one who shows us how to, to live this life. Jesus is the one who shows us how to follow after God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you're looking to some of these heroes in, in Hebrews 11, and you say, I want to pattern my life after Noah or Moses or Abraham, I got news for you. All of them had flaws. This chapter culminates with what the writer will ultimately say, ultimately say in Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3. He says this, So we fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Wouldn't that make you mad if you were being falsely accused of something? But Jesus counted it a joy to go to the cross because he understood what it was going to accomplish. And because he submitted himself to this cross, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Friends, I want to invite us to look to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who ever lived an insta-perfect life. He came, he walked on our earth, He breathed our air. He was troubled by our infirmities. And yet he was without sin. And because of what Jesus has done, we can have victory over sin in our life as well. We can have victory over temptation. We can respond in the right way when we're angry, when something wrong has been done to us. We can respond in a way that gives glory and honor to God, not because of our human strength, Not because we just worked harder and we disciplined ourselves and we decided to be better people, but because of what Jesus has done for us and because of his spirit that is at work within us. And so there's a challenge here today. There's a challenge to be people who respond in ways that bring glory and honor to God. And I would say to you because of Jesus, by God's grace, I'm not who I was, and I'm becoming who God has designed me to be. I'm not who I was, thank God, but I'm becoming this person who God has designed to be. And the model is not Moses, the model's not Abraham, the model's not Noah. Hebrews culminates this chapter by saying the model is Jesus. Jesus shows us what it looks like to live a life of faithfulness to God. So you're going to get angry. But what if we ask ourselves this question? Lord, make me angry about the things that you are angry about. What is it that angers God? What is it that angers God? There's really just one example that I can point to where you see Jesus so angry. Now, as a little bit of a side note, he's pretty angry with Peter every now and then. He rebukes Peter. But the the other example that I can think of is when he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. Do you remember this episode? He cleanses the temple and he turns over the table of the money changers and he says to these money changers, you have made my father's house a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Now we read that and we don't fully understand what's going on there. This wasn't about selling stuff in the church lobby. I'm telling you, go buy some coffee, it's good stuff. It wasn't about that. What this is about is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So what would happen is the religious establishment found a way that they could exploit people. To offer your sacrifice at the temple, you had to have a certain kind of animal. And so people would, depending on their economic status, they would bring... Doves or, or or lambs, and there's all there's a, a list of animals that were that were listed, that that were appropriate. We know that Jesus' family brought brought birds because they were poor, and what would happen is is they would bring these these birds to the temple, and they would say, "Are these birds worthy to be offered as a sacrifice?" And the priest would say, "No, no, no, those aren't worthy. You're going to have to buy new birds." So they would take the birds that the poor family would bring, and they would hold them somewhere. And then they would go to that place where they hold the birds, and they would get other birds that have been deemed unclean, and they would bring those out to the family. Now suddenly these birds are clean now. And they would say, you can't offer those birds, but here, you can offer these birds. And we're going to need you to buy these from us. And you're also going to have to change your money. See, that money has Caesar's image on it. You're going to have to change that to temple currency. And um, we kind of control the exchange rate as well. And so we're controlling the exchange rate. We're controlling what is a proper sacrifice and what isn't. And who ended up suffering through this sacrificial system? The poor. They were, they were taken advantage of. And so Jesus comes into this situation. And just like the Old Testament prophets that repeatedly said to the people, you're taking advantage of the poor, you're exploiting the widow, you're not caring for the immigrant among you, you're mistreating the immigrant, you're not caring for the orphan among you, this is why you're going to go into exile. Jesus, who is angry at the injustice of this sacrificial system, he goes into the temple, he turns over the tables, he turns over the money, and he says there's something new that's happening in this new kingdom that I'm going to inaugurate through my life, death, and resurrection. You're not going to need this sacrificial system. And it's going to be a kingdom where people are not exploited and they're not taken advantage of. And Jesus was angry at that. And he gave his very life to correct it. And he entrusted his life to the will of the Father. And he was raised to new life three days later. Let's be angry about the things that make God angry. God is angry at injustice. God is angry when people are mistreated. God is angry when people don't have access to the resources that they need. And the people of God should be concerned about that. You know, I want to be angry about the things that make God angry. But I also want to work towards reconciliation. I want to reconcile the relationships that God wants to be reconciled. And did you know there is not one broken relationship that God doesn't want to see reconciled? He wants all relationships to be reconciled. The enmity and the anger that exists between different people groups. He wants all of that to be reconciled through his cross and through his resurrection. And so what that means, church, is we can't look at a whole subgroup of people and just write them off. They're so immoral, they're so godless, they're so contrary to the ways of God. What 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 Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, he says, You are my ambassadors. And I have, been, I have called you to share this message of reconciliation. I am reconciling the whole world in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you are my people. And you are to go into the world and you are to work towards the reconciliation of all things. And so, church, there cannot be any us and them. The people that get it right, the people that get it wrong, we're the ones that get it right. And we're just going to write off the people who think differently than us and the people that think wrongly and in ways that are unbiblical. What if the people of God lived in such a beautiful way? What if we lived in such a way that was consistent with the ways of Jesus, that people that were far from God, people that had different world views from us, people that 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 nec- didn't necessarily agree with with our values. What if they saw a community of people living in such a way that was filled with love and compassion and a commitment to justice? And what if they were drawn to that? What if it was so beautiful and so winsome and so kind and so compassionate that we, didn't have to, we don't have to win an argument with people who are contrary to the things of God. We can just live in such a way that reflects Jesus that people far from God would be brought into alignment with that. And that, rec- that relationship would be reconciled. Yeah, that's the hope of the world. That's, that's who we can be, friends. Because we follow the way of Abraham or Moses or Noah. Nah, they, they all had flaws. But by faith, they point us to Jesus. The one who is perfect. And that's, that's our hope today. God is reconciling the world to himself, and we are his ambassadors. We are the ones that bring this message of reconciliation the world. Let's be that people today. Here on this July 4th Sunday, sometimes I think about all the things that appear to be wrong with our nation. Things that appear to be contrary to, to the ways of God. There's a lot that's broken in our world. I don't have all those answers, but I do have this answer. That if we as the people of God will live in a way that is consistent with the way of Jesus. If we will fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, we can't go wrong. And God will do something with that. He will do something with that that'll save the world. So let's commit to be that people today. I want us to just conclude by singing this song that celebrates the goodness and the mercy and the love of God. And as we sing that today, with this beautiful vision of who we can be as God's people, this vision of people who are angry at the things that make God angry, but work towards reconciliation of all things, can we just allow that vision to to capture our imagination today? Can we look into the goodness and the love and the mercy of God and leave here today by His Spirit, compelled to be that people in our world?